Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Frank Conway here and I'm so excited to have our featured guest, Jadrian Wooten, on our show. Hi, Jadrian. Hi, Frank. How are you? Good. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Jadrian Wooten is an economics lecturer at the Pennsylvania State University. He has a PhD from Washington State and an MBA from San Houston State. Jadrian's research focuses primarily on sports economics. He analyzes various economics concepts that would otherwise not be evident by your typical sports fan or analyst. Jadrian shares a passion for teaching economics and believes in an interactive classroom as the best, as the best learning environment. Jadrian, I've given our listeners a brief overview, so please take a moment and tell us a little about yourself. Uh, thanks, Frank. Um, so, yeah, my name is Jadrian, and I've been teaching economics for uh, a couple of years now. And I, I feel like each semester and, and each year that I, I teach it, I, I've, I fall in love with it all over again. Um, I started off, I think, like a lot of lecturers, a lot of instructors, kind of nervous, timid, scared. But then once that first semester was over, I, I realized that it, I, I started – I started seeing economics uh, around me in the same way that I've asked my students to do it. I've started to see it around me, and, and I've kind of have a new passion for it each semester. Uh, so I really try to focus a lot of my effort and time outside of the classroom on uh, on expanding economics to people who may not be taking it in school, uh, whether that's online or whether they're doing primarily research-related stuff. I'm just talking to them about you know, how economics can be used in their everyday life. So um, that's probably a little bit about me that sounds a little a little wishy-washy but yeah I, I fall in love with it every semester so I, I love talking about economics so I'm happy uh, happy to be doing this with you and you mentioned that you reach out to those people who would otherwise not be studying economics and they reach out to you to learn a bit more is it and see how they bring economics into their lives right so a, a lot of that I think uh, has to do with pretty much my family and friends on Facebook so uh, I have a lot of high school friends or a lot of family members uh, who didn't go to college, and they'll see me posting things about uh, price discrimination and applications uh, of various different market structures, and and they will usually come to me and just chat and say, you know, I, I read this and it makes sense when you say it. I, I have a couple other questions. Can I ask you about it? And I'm always super excited to tell them about it, and I'll usually point them to one of the large open classrooms or one of the MOOCs online, and my goal is to try to get people reading about economics or thinking about economics. And um, even if they're not going to a university, they can, there's still plenty of popular press books that they can use to kind of learn the, learn the basics and, and get excited about it like I am. I'm with you on that one, and that's pretty much why I created this podcast. So yep. people like you can uh, share their story and their passion about economics and I suppose teach people uh, to be more aware of how economics can affect their lives because there's a lot of things out there and we'll talk about it soon regarding sports, your mm-hmm. passion, and how you can interlink the economics concepts in with sport. Could you tell our listeners, our economic rock star listeners, whether you have a quote or a mantra that you actually f- follow or that you find very important to your your work? De- uh, definitely. So I, I show this quote at the beginning of uh, each class and each semester that I teach, um, and I have it stored inside my desk. Um, so every time I pull out my desk, I see this, and it, it kind of keeps me focused. And it's a it's a great Mark Twain quote that's just that says, uh, "Whatever you think you can, or you think you can't, uh, you're right." So it doesn't matter um, 
it doesn't matter necessarily if you have the ability, if you think you have the ability when you start, uh, if you put your mind to it, um, you can achieve the things that you want to do. And if you don't think you can do it, then, you know, that's also true. You're going to end up failing uh, because of self-defeat. And so I, I share that with my class uh, at the beginning of every semester. And I just say, hey, look, you know, this class is going to be hard. Um, if you really believe that you can do it and you put in the time and effort, uh, you're going to be successful. And if you go through each semester thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, congratulations, you're right again. Uh, you're going to struggle and you're not going to be able to do it. And so I use that, whether it's teaching, whether it's doing my research, um, or even just kind of day-to-day life, I, I try to push myself and challenge myself uh, to be better in whatever I'm doing. Yeah. So that's that's probably my favorite quote every time I open the desk uh, that's on there. It just goes to show that you you need to focus and have that passion and, and never give up attitude. I also love a Mark Twain quote, quote that I really go by. Um, anyone who stops learning is old, whether 20 or 80. Anyone mm-hmm. who keeps learning stays young. And the greatest thing you can do is keep your mind young. So, yep. so even even if you're not at college or high school, self-education, reading books, learning. Yep. It doesn't have to be one particular discipline you can go into psychology or whatever it is just as long as you keep your mind fresh and young yeah those are those are always the students that i think i'm most impressed by uh, are the ones who just no matter what's going on in their life they just they're still in school or they're still reading books and they're still learning and it's i hope that you know i'm i'm still like that when i'm 60 70 80 that i'm not afraid to learn something new if it's challenging your love of sport is quite evident from your teaching and research Share with our economic rock star listeners of a time that defined you and which led you onto the path towards your current professional capacity. Because I'd say there's not many people that would actually link sports with economics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I can actually talk, I guess, uh, a little bit about how I got into economics. And then it, it was kind of a trickle down to where I, I started to fall in love with sports economics. I've, I've always been interested in sports. So the sports side was when I found out you could do that, that just made my day. Uh, but I was a junior in, in, at the university and taking an intermediate micro course, and I didn't know anything that was going on. And uh, that class kind of really opened my eyes to thinking and decision-making and why businesses and why people do the things that we do. And then I ended up tutoring uh, part-time for the university, and that's when I started realizing, hey, you know, I really like teaching. I really enjoy passing on this knowledge and this passion that I have, and at that point, I knew I wanted to become a professor. I'd only been in school a couple of years, but I was like, I knew a professor is what I wanted to do. I had no idea about sports economics at the time, uh, but it was only whenever I was working on my master's that I was reading a paper by Todd Jewell, and I, I still remember the moment. Uh, it was about racial diversity of cities and how that affects attendance in Major League Soccer. And I don't, I don't remember how I stumbled across it, but I remember opening the PDF and thinking, wow, you can actually look up sports-related information and apply it as, as an economist. And you know, this has real implications because at the time, Major League Soccer was expanding into cities that had uh, large Hispanic populations. And the authors had found, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have an effect on attendance. And that's when I... It, started churning. I was like, you know, I, I could get a sports economics degree. Um, I can, I can actually do this as a living. And I think at that moment I was, I was head over heels. I mean, I already loved economics, but then when I found out I could take sports and put that with it, um, I love coming to work every day, not just because of teaching, but 
I love coming to work because there's very few jobs where you get to sit in front of a computer and look at ESPN all day long <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're getting paid to do it. Win, win. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's fantastic. I, I watch people struggle with research and I'm sitting there. My research idea list is just longer than I'll ever probably have time to do it. Um, I, it's, I, I'll, I'll probably never forget those moments. So never who, forget. So who do you support in the MLS? Uh, so I, I'm, I grew up kind of near Houston, so I'm a, I'm a Houston Dynamo fan, but I spent four years in Washington, so I have a soft spot for the Seattle Sounders, but uh, Houston Dynamo, that's my team. We might see the United States win the World Cup some year. Yeah, one day. One day, I'm hoping. They have a big enough population to do so. Right, I mean, we, we've got the people, we've just got to put the resources to it. It's just, it's going to take some time. When I first came across you yourself, actually, your your story triggered a thought and it kind of resonated with Billy Bean and the Oakland A's, that story. <laughs> so I was just, I had, had to reach out to you because some of the papers that you had written had those economic concepts that I thought was interesting and they needed to share with the listeners. Mm-hmm. So who are your main influencers, past or present, that have helped shape your views and vision in your academic uh, career? Uh, so it, it it's the it's the cheesy answer, but I mean it's it's definitely true. Um, all of my past professors have just had such an impact, especially when it comes to teaching. Um, they all have their unique kind of styles and methods. But um, I had two fantastic undergrad professors, uh, Mark Frank and Darren Grant, that just uh, head over heels. Two of the most interesting people uh, you could sit and listen to uh, during a lecture. I took very few notes in their class. Um, I did I did very well, but I took very few notes in their class just because watching them teach and, and watching that passion come across was just so inspiring. Um, they're both fantastic, fantastic teachers, but I think even more than that, they're just fantastic researchers. Um, I remember one time uh, I was at the school late uh, tutoring some people, and I was walking down a hallway and I saw... Uh, Professor Grant in the classroom. Nobody else was in there, but he was just scribbling away on the board and kind of the uh, quintessential uh, mad professor, just equations all over the place. And I remember walking in and, and asking, is, is everything okay? And he just goes, go away, go away. I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of something. And then the very next day he called me in, apologized for being rude. And he goes, I, and he was showing me the equations that he came up with. And, um, and he walked me through it, and he didn't have to walk me through it, but he he wanted to show me and teach me, and um, those are definitely those those two guys in terms of teaching and research have just been fantastic. And I, I try to I try to take a little bit from each of them, whether it's research or whether it's teaching, and so I kind of have a unique style that a lot of people don't understand, but yeah, it's pieces of all my past teachers. I'm I'm just a piece. I'm a collective piece of all of my former teachers. Wow, that's a great story. Um, yeah. It almost sounds like John Nasher, yeah. you know, that type of economist who has that right. passion and just a focus on what they want to teach. And it must be amazing that you actually have taken and witnessed that itself. And it's mm-hmm. actually you're going to share that passion now in your own life to your other students and to the general population in terms of your research. Right. Um, I'd like to maybe chat about one of your papers 
Sure. I think it's it's called do do rivalries even matter in major league soccer. So it actually seems to be an extremely insightful piece of research, especially for any interest group associated with the club for purpose of generating revenue. Because I believe that with rivalries, it might bring about increased ticket sales. Mm-hmm. It's good for the clubs, maybe the TV in terms of ad revenue. And stalls or little enterprises that are actually built up for the game. I want to find out what your hypothesis is uh, surrounding that paper, maybe the primary objectives of the research. Yeah, so I, I started that paper just like you said. I, I, I had this idea. As a sports fan, I was convinced um, rivalries have to make a difference. Creating these rivalries was, was the key thing uh, for Major League Soccer at the time. Um, with the most One of the most recent teams that came out, the Major League Soccer commissioner came out and said, this team is going to be a great rivalry for another team that was located nearby and that's it struck me as so strange uh, that you introduce a new team as a new rivalry uh, for another team and and then he goes on to introduce them and so I was really focused on you know one do rivalries actually increase attendance as a sports fan I sat there and I said of course they do the answer is yes Um, and then I started getting into okay well if they do or if they don't, how, how much can they uh, increase attendance, increase sales? Um, so that was kind of the objective. And I, I tried a lot of different things, um, a lot of different measures to try to make it significant. Um, I think that was kind of my own bias as a sports fan coming in. Um, I was convinced rivalries have to matter. Um, so my my objective was to see if they did, and I tried every possible method to make them important. Yeah, and that's the I suppose you have to remain unbiased when you're doing a piece of research because that expectation we'd all expect the rivalries to be majorly important, right? Especially if they're organically developed mm-hmm. rather than being forced upon. Oh, yeah, we're going to be a rival to your team, and let's uh, let's do this, and we create a history between ourselves. But what were your main findings and conclusions? They were surprising, or well, so yeah, they were surprising. That's that's part of where uh, the bias of what I was trying to do is is probably is probably not a good thing. Um, but I think it actually helped me, given that I found that rivalries don't matter. Um, they didn't increase overall attendance in terms of numbers per game. Um, it didn't increase capacity percentage in terms of uh, filling up the stadium. There were a lot of other factors that that did that. Um, so I, while the findings weren't what I wanted, I think by being a little biased and saying, no, I'm going to go back and redefine these to make them significant. Um, I have about five or six different measures, and they all say the same thing. And so without realizing it, I kind of gave myself a robustness check and I said, hey, look, if I, if I define it this way, it's still not significant. If I define it this way, it's still not significant. Uh, so while I wasn't happy with the findings, um, I, I, I think that showing that the rivalries are not significant um, is, is probably a key that the rivalries that we currently have in Major League Soccer are just not organic. Uh, like you said, or, organic rivalries, I again, I believe, are important. Um, but it seems like a lot of the rivalries that we have um, are forced upon the clubs where they're playing for a cup that uh, the fans may not care about, but the teams themselves do care about. 
Uh, so I, I think growing organic rivalries in Major League Soccer is a, is a big issue, and they're slowly starting to do that over the past couple of years. Uh, but again, it's one of those time issues. I think in time, that'll happen naturally. It just we haven't had that much time in Major League Soccer. Um, there's another interesting paper, actually, that you uh, carried out with co-author Ben Smith. And yep. it's, it seems to have got a lot of press. The working paper, Estimating Consumer Demand for Information Attributes Using Twitter Data. And if you could remind me, the published paper, it's about pundits being overconfident. Correct. So it's uh, it was published in the Significance magazine uh, for the Royal Statistical Society and the American Statistical Association. And it's about pundits being overconfident? Uh, so that was, that was our goal, uh, yeah. was to try to... We were using Twitter data. Um, so the, the original paper was just showing how you could use Twitter data to um, collect information that you might be of interest. Uh, and then the example that we give inside the paper is uh, proving whether pundits are too confident or if perhaps they're you know, completely accurate or what's going on with pundits um, professing knowledge of all these different areas. So our original idea was to take a Jim Cramer financial punditry type approach, but then we realized uh, finance is kind of hard when it comes to pundits. Uh, they can say to buy a stock that it's going to grow, but then there's no real end date. So even if the stock sinks, they could say, well, just wait a second. It's not going. It, it'll go up eventually. So we kicked around financials, and those didn't work. And then, you know, it came to me and I said, well, you know, there's a lot of sports pundits. We have multiple channels devoted to these experts in sports and they predict a lot of things like who's going to win games. And we know exactly whether they were right or wrong. Uh, so we started collecting sports pundits um, as our kind of example of how you could use Twitter to collect data about the public. So you mentioned Twitter. Mm -hmm. How would you go about gathering data for Twitter and how many observations or tweets, so, I suppose, how many tweets would you need to actually do the study? So we actually collected, uh, we collected billions. <laughs> so, I, so, it, the, so I am definitely not the computer scientist in this group. Uh, the co-author, Ben Smith, he's an economist and he is uh, fantastic with computers. Um, so he used Twitter's API, which is their streaming API, where it publishes every single tweet that is going on in the world. Um, at, any getting, at any given moment. Uh, and so when Twitter crashes, that's typically when the API is overflowing and it can't handle that. For the most part, the Twitter API is fantastic. Uh, so he wrote a program, and, and that's kind of the foundation of that paper, uh, that as long as you ask Twitter to pull keywords for you uh, from that API, it can pull out uh, any tweets that contain a certain set of words. Uh, so what we had done was we asked Twitter to report to us in a very large uh, SQL file, so similar to a spreadsheet, every tweet from every person in the world uh, that had to do with uh, Major League Baseball war playoff teams. Uh, so there's about 18 teams that we asked it to pull from over about a one-month time frame. Uh, so it pulled literally billions of tweets. Um, and then we did some regular expression coding where we could piece through them and figure out what people were actually saying about it, whether they were saying a certain team would win, a certain team would lose, um, like that. So it started with billions and we narrowed it down to millions, but yeah, we definitely have millions of data points uh, to play with. 
Wow. You um, mentioned that you initially set out to study confidence or overconfidence in the financial markets. Right. But because of the time frame, they never would say, oh, yeah, this stock will rise 10% in within a three-month period. It was always this. We expect the stock to rise or fall in the near future, but there was never one predetermined date. Whereas right. with sports, at least there's a calendar date for an event and it's a win or lose or a draw. And their so, predictions will either be uh, true or failed. Right. So at that point, yeah, we could actually measure if people uh, were accurate versus financial. You just, it, it's hard. There's no time frame. There's no end date uh, to measure accuracy. So you mentioned Jim Cramer. Jim Cramer, yeah. And he's pretty much infamous for his, was the Lehman Brothers collapse? Uh, yes, turns? yes. Yeah. So that's actually, yeah, that's the, the so, Lehman Brothers collapse. He said, you know, it's a great fight. It's a great stock to invest in, and then uh, not too long after that, yeah, they went bankrupt and went crazy. He's the he's the poster child uh, for overconfident and not very accurate. No, he's probably not one person that I would actually uh, listen to or follow because really, he'd probably get you overly excited with all the instruments that he has on show and buy, buy, buy this stock, and some people might get caught up in the hype. Right, and that's that's actually what's scary. So there's uh, there's some financial papers uh, that talk about a Jim Cramer bump, um, where after he mentions a stock that should be bought, that's a good stock, uh, that stock traditionally sees uh, a short term increase in uh, in share prices, and then it falls after that. Uh, so what my colleague had done, just as a, a fun project to show his class, um, he actually uh, short sold the Jim Cramer stocks that he recommended wow. knowing that most likely they would go down. Yeah. Uh, so he showed that to his class that, you know, even, even though Jim Cramer is often wrong, there are a lot of people who don't know finance um, that are investing in Jim Cramer. I mean, it's kind of scary knowing that, you know, these guys aren't that accurate, but because they're displaying this level of confidence, it's um, people are buying that people are buying that confidence um, on television. It's a little scary. Uh, knowing that that stuff actually happens. So the, the the stock pretty much overshoots initially, and then it's time to short sell that stock. Yeah, it comes it comes back down. I think, uh, within, I think within a week or so. I think how people might draw comfort in investing in the stocks that Jim Cramer, I suppose, recommends is because I think he trades for a charitable, charitable fund that he's actually involved in. So he's almost putting his money where his mouth is. Right. And maybe that kind of draws comfort for people who might have that herd-like mentality. And I suppose there's confirmation in an analyst that's actually recommending these stocks and that's what they're looking for. So there's almost like a confirmation bias where they want the actual proven explanation as to why you actually should invest or not. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just go back to your paper. Sorry. Sure. This all seems to be a psychology or sociology discipline. When, when we're dealing with how humans actually behave, um, the human trait mm -hmm. in terms of confidence and overconfidence, should we not leave that to psychologists? So the the accuracy part and some of the confidence literature, uh, we, we do pull from psychology. So, so Ben is definitely a behavioral psychologist. Um, and so when we were kind of tossing this around as we want to put this in economics, we tried to figure out, okay, well, why, why should people care about this? Why should we care if, um, if CNBC is putting on overconfident people, if ESPN is putting on overconfident people? 
Um, and I think what we kind of rationalized out of that was that uh, people need to understand why those people are on television. Um, understand that CNBC knows, ESPN knows, they all know uh, that people are not necessarily buying accurate, boring predictions. Uh, nobody gets excited about somebody sitting up there saying, you know, invest in government bonds, you can return 1%. Those, those don't really make people excited. Uh, but if somebody's standing up there saying, this is the one you need to buy, it'll make you a fortune. Um, having people understand that companies are going through that process of selling advertising, generating revenue and profit for themselves. Why are they putting these people on there? It's it's because people like you and I and the rest of the world are watching these television shows. And so our, our hope was that by publishing this and putting it out in significance and getting some of the... It was mentioned on NPR briefly, but getting this information out there to people, um, hoping to kind of snap them out of that trance of while they're watching it saying, wait a second, am I, am I really getting benefit out of this or am I watching this because I like watching him slam buttons and hit buzzers? Um, so we're hoping that it kind of breaks people away from that trance of confidence and watching people because they're overconfident. What were some examples of keywords that you searched for on Twitter that illustrated confidence? How did you rank these words? Uh, so we actually used a paper uh, that was published a couple years ago that, that looked at strength of various words. Um, and so we took that same list and broke it down into what we called strong and weak words. Um, so if I were just to say uh, the Bears will beat the Cubs, um, that, that's not a very confident prediction, but I am making a prediction. Uh, but if I said the Bears were going to destroy the Cubs or give some kind of um, some kind of confident prediction about how much they're going to win, we ranked those as very strong words. Uh, and so we were able to actually use a list that's been published before. Uh, they gave kind of a, a scale ranking, and we broke those down. And then to come up with those words, as a sports fan, I was able to come up with a lot of them by myself. Um, but as we were getting closer to the playoffs, we actually sat down on Twitter and just searched uh, for team names. So we searched for Dodgers, searched for Red Sox. And then we were actually looking at things that people were saying. Um, so we found a lot of different phrases that maybe are regionalized or um, that we just weren't aware of, and we just constantly kept adding it to the list. Uh, so we were able to come up with a, a list of about 30 words on our own, and then I would say that list expanded to about 60 um, whenever we started actually looking at Twitter and seeing what people were saying. So the nice thing about it, when we pulled the tweets, uh, we were pulling them based off of team name, and then after that we ran the regular expression uh, based on the strength of words. So we could always go back and figure out which words weren't being captured to make sure that we were actually collecting everything uh, that was about sports. Um, so it's things like annihilate, destroy, decimate, kill. They, would, of, they would pique my interest. Right. Those, are the, those would be strong, uh, strong, strongly confident versus they'll beat, defeat, win, won't lose kind of the passive uh a passive a attempt at it have you actually out of interest have you found which team happened to be overly confident in terms of the pundits or the amateurs that were reporting these uh, so you know we actually i don't think we've done that um it'd be interesting 
Yeah, so we have we so Twitter does have uh, geotags on their um, on their tweet, so you could see where the location is coming from. Uh, and we thought it, we processed it, we thought about doing it, uh, but a lot of people lie about where they're from. Um, or some, a lot of people put United States. A lot of people will put just the state name. Uh, and so we've we've been tempted to geotag them, but uh, the tweets that we were pulling uh, represent kind of a population density map, even though uh, New York and Los Angeles might be playing each other. Uh, we, we saw large amounts of tweets in those areas, but we also saw large tweets in Houston and Chicago and Seattle and other large cities. And so a lot of people overall were... Um, we're making predictions. Um, overall, the the general public was the most accurate. They were about fifty percent. They could get it right, like a coin flip. Uh, the pundits were much lower than that. Uh, they were about forty two percent accurate, I think, um, when we tested against them. So they, looking at the population um, overall, uh, they were relatively accurate, uh, and they were the least confident out of the group. Uh, but we we're not one hundred percent sure in terms of location who's more confident than others so you just mentioned there that the amateurs had a better prediction rate than the pundits right so yeah they uh, amateurs could predict it about 50 percent. i mean they they got it right about 50 or yeah they got it right about 50 percent of the time we should listen to well not that we should but amateur amateurs would be just as equally as good as the pundits right it's kind of the uh that notion of kind of a group mentality that the group Group knows better than an individual. I think it's in in that category of uh, interpretation. That almost reminds me of a study that was done regarding picking stocks. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, I, it's, it's in that same, and that's why we were really happy with the results for sports, and it matched some of the stuff we thought about with financials. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to associate amateurs with the chimpanzee, but someone right. got a chimpanzee to randomly select stocks, and the chimpanzee actually oh. did as well as your average hedge fund hedge, hedge fund manager. You know, I, I think that that would probably be similar uh, since our, our pundits are professionals anyway. Uh, they had about a 42, 43% success rate. Um, it's not great, but it's not as accurate as you would expect from somebody who claims to be a professional. Uh, people be thinking, okay, what has that got to do with economics? But it's all about the behavioral side of economics. So... How do people increase their Twitter following? If I was to look for uh, an increase in followers and I was reporting on economics, what should I do? So, and this is what's, this is what's tough, especially when it comes to economics and uh, if you're looking at macroeconomics. So being accurate does increase your followers. So it's, uh, you're not lost on being accurate. So if you're making accurate predictions, you'll, um, you'll, be, you'll get some followers. Uh, but if you want large number of followers, uh, you need to be accurate and confident. Um, sadly, if you're just, if you're confident, you're going to get more followers than if you were perfectly accurate. Um, it's a little crazy <laughs> to think about, um, but yeah, being confident in your predictions, even if you're wrong, um, be confident in those. Uh, people tend to follow uh, the confident people uh, around them. So if you're making predictions about stocks and finance and, uh, just just be overly confident and you'll probably get a, a, a handful of Twitter followers. I suppose people feel comfortable in groups like the herd-like mentality mm. and they conform to what other people are saying. 
and it's the contrarian people who or the tr- contrarian analysts or economists that think things aren't going as well and they may not be as confident to announce that there might be a, a fall in house prices or stock prices but some of them go out there and they get criticized for that and mm-hmm. um, so when an event occurs such as a financial crisis or a housing bubble crash some of these come out of the woodwork and said oh yeah look at i had that in my prediction model and mm-hmm. why, why didn't you say it when it was announced uh, prior to the event some people have done it but uh, i suppose that's the behavior again that we have in terms of our human psychology we have that innate ability to look for groups to conform with our own ideas or even if you don't have uh, have any agreement, but there's a group that actually has a majority agreement regarding an outcome, there tends to be a, a need or a, a fear of going against that um, popular opinion. Right, yeah. So, I mean, accuracy yeah, is, is really important, but you, you, want to, you want to draw people into you. Um, and a lot of that, people use confident speeches. Uh, to get people to follow them and say, hey, look, we're right. We know this is right. Um, follow me. This is right. Um, so, yeah, I think I think understanding that about ourselves is really important. Well, I follow you, Jadrian. So you're, <laughs> doing, you're doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me talk a bit about your teaching then, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I, I also found you online. And you seem to be embracing the use of online resources and social media with open arms. How important do you think this approach to teaching and learning economics is becoming? I, I actually, I think it's huge. Um, I think this is kind of uh, where we're expecting things to go. Uh, we see a lot of these large open classrooms, which, you know, they have their pros and cons. That's fine. Um, but I think as academics and as researchers, part of our duty, especially if you're at a public university, uh, is to share your knowledge and share things with the world. Um, I'm a big believer in kind of open sourceware, open, um, open journals, open access to things. We, we have all this knowledge. I, I think it needs to be shared. And I think using websites, using Twitter, using Facebook, whatever tool that an academic wants to use, I think sharing those things with other people are important. So I work on a couple different projects of just disseminating information, whether it's news reports, movie clips, um, NPR podcasts. I think putting that stuff out there uh, is part of our duty as academics. Um, A lot of us are funded through public grants or that we're at public universities. um, And I think we should be sharing that stuff with the public, uh, not just the paying public who pays to come sit in our class. Uh, So I think using online, online resources, whether again, social media, websites, whatever your preference. I think sharing that stuff um, is hugely important. Um, and, and you can reach students, not just students that are enrolled, but people who want to learn. Uh, you can reach them and share with them and, and, and increase our social knowledge. But it, it takes the it takes the effort of the instructor. Yeah, um, and I think, I, I think that needs a bigger push than we have right now. The geographical boundaries have totally been eliminated. So right. We can reach out or students or not necessarily students, but anybody can reach out to academics like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the field as India, people who are in poverty who do not cannot have an education, but they may have some Internet access 
and they can study economics mm-hmm. and any other discipline. And do you have any particular teaching style that you find quite effective in delivering your classes? Yeah, I'll actually, I'll, I'll say it in the, I guess, the purest economic terms I can say. Um, I would say that I'm a word minimizer uh, when it comes to slides. Yeah. I love talking. I, I have no problem chatting with students and, and being in front of a classroom. And I think that uh, PowerPoints, how they've been used or whatever uh, presentation method that you have, I think however they've been used in the past is just sometimes terrible. Um, When people load that information down or load those slides down with information, it's just that stuff students can get out of a textbook. They can Google that stuff. I'm a big believer in showing them data, showing them graphs, um, showing them stuff that's actually going on, actual application. Visualize. Visualizing, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to talk about what is the unemployment rate, and it's something else to look at a graph of historical unemployment rates since the 50s and say, hey, what's going on? You know, what's happened to labor force participation rates? I mean, I can stand up there and say women have increased in the labor force. But and once students see how much that's changed from 1950 to today, that's when their eyes go just explode and they say, wow. Two and a half times more women have participated in the labor force. And I think if you're putting that in words, they don't get that same wow reaction as when they see it on the graph and they see how things are changing in the world. So I'm definitely a word minimizer when it comes to slides. I think that's probably the best way to describe my teaching style. I love it. Can you share one of your personal habits that you strongly believe contributes to how you get things done? Yeah, this is... I've had some colleagues that uh, are amazed at this, and I think uh, students, it freaks them out at first, but then they come to expect it. Go for it. I'm a big believer in the zero inbox. Um, I don't keep emails in my inbox. If something comes into my uh, email, I either respond to it immediately if I can, if it's a question, a schedule. Um, If it's something that I do need to save for later, I have a follow-up folder. And then at the end of the day, I sit down with my follow-up folder and I go through it. Uh, I think that f- initially that freaks students out because they'll send in an email, hey, can I come talk to you this afternoon? And within a couple of minutes, it says, yes, I'm free at 2 o'clock. And I think that instant reaction uh, is great for them. Um, I think that's helped me get stuff done because emails are no longer a large part of my day because I'm not checking 200 of them at a time. I'm dealing with them as they come across my desk so I can focus on other things. So that's kind of my personal habit that is scary at first, but it's fantastic once you start doing it. Zero inbox. I think that's another podcast to talk oh. about, really. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's strange uh, when, when you meet somebody who does that, I think. Um, I got an, an email request for a background check for a friend of mine this morning. And I called the guy within two minutes and he said, oh, I just sent you that email. I said, yeah, I, I want to get, get this taken care of. Let's set up a date to do this. Um, and I think it just makes things more efficient um, rather than sitting on things and worrying about them in a week. So I suppose it brings me to my next question. Do you have a favorite Internet resource that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, so I'm, actually, I'm going to, uh, I guess, pay this one forward. Uh, I learned about this about two weeks ago. And I've been in love with it for the last two weeks. Uh, it's called Calendly. So C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y. 
Calendly.com syncs with your Gmail account or other email accounts. Um, And it basically is a personal scheduling device for people. Uh, You can set up uh, boxes so that people can schedule 10 minute, 15, 30 minute, however long you want. Uh, They can schedule meetings with you and it automatically is placed on your calendar. If you have a busy uh, event on your calendar, it doesn't let them schedule with that. So similar to what a lot of universities do do already, uh, but it's open for everybody. And so as I've set it up for my students, uh, it, it eliminates that back and forth of, can I come to your office hours on Wednesday? Sure, of course, I'm free these times. Can I come this time? No, how about this time? It eliminates that. I can send them a link that says, here, sign up for a time. Uh, you can set the dates, the times, everything. So it's just an amazing, amazing tool. Can I ask you one thing? I know it's probably sure. it's just going back a something you talked about earlier on regarding your presentations. Do you have a particular presentation tool that you actually use, like Project or Haiku Deck or Prezi? No, I, I actually, I'm a, I'm a PowerPoint person. Uh, okay. Prima- primarily because it's usually just a graph that I have on there. Um, and I throw that graph on there. I let their eyes pop and say, whoa, that's weird. And then I stand there and we talk for five or ten minutes about whatever the topic is, labor force participation, what's changing, what's not changing. So yeah, I keep it very simple. My conference presentations are usually only five slides. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of those title slide. Yeah, that's the best way to do it, I think. Yeah. And what book would you recommend to the Economic Rockstar listeners, please? So I'm actually going to recommend a book uh, that luckily Levitt recommended when he did a Reddit AMA um, I used it when I taught sports economics. It's called Scorecasting uh, by uh, Moskowitz. So it's kind of a Freakonomics for sports. Um, so it's a fantastic book. Uh, pretty short. It's great for sports lovers. I mean, it talks about decisions like going for it on fourth down, home field advantage, um, racial diversity and coaching, just a bunch of fun topics. I put these recommendations on my website, economicrockstar.com, for listeners sure. to look up and and to be able to access the book and some of the internet resources that you actually mentioned. Oh, that's perfect, yeah. If you feel that you do not have the time to read some of these recommended books, then can I suggest taking a look at audiobooks.com? You can listen to books like Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, something I'm reading at the moment, while doing your exercise, driving to work or college, or going about your daily chores. I'm aiming to provide great value to my Economic Rockstar listeners and I want to share with you a great resource that allows me to manage my time conveniently and efficiently and that's audiobooks.com. You can get a 30-day free trial with no commitments. Audiobooks.com will give you one credit to use and redeem it against any of the 55,000 titles available on their site. Just go to audiobooks.com slash sign up and enter the promo code ROCKSTAR. What one takeaway do you want our listeners to leave with that can improve their approach to maybe teaching or researching or even deciding to learn economics? So I, it's one of those, I, I go back and I tell my students this on day one, and it's uh, right after that quote of what you can and can't do, I tell them, uh, you'll be successful in this class, you'll be successful as an adult, and you'll be successful in life if you just read. Um, and I think that that's important for teaching, for teachers, for researchers, for any learners. Um, dedicate time in your day to reading. Uh, it doesn't have to be academic. Um, it can be just books in general. Um, and I think reading is kind of one of those lost arts of, and probably 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 one of the the sad parts about digitization 
is that we're not dedicating the same amount of time to reading that we used to. Um, so I think the more you read, even again, books that aren't academic, you can you can see applications uh, to maybe what you're teaching in a book about in Moby Dick. Right? I can I can find labor economic topics in Moby Dick. Um, I can find score casting, which isn't about economics initially, but then when you read it, you realize, hey, there's a lot of loss aversion, a lot of stuff in here. So I think re- reading is important for teaching, for coming up with research ideas, and and even for learning economics. It, it starts with reading, uh, so you can get better. At, at just about anything just by reading. Jadrian, before we go, could you tell our listeners where they may be able to find you? Sure. Uh, so uh, probably the easiest way is, of course, on Twitter. So uh, my handle is at Wootonomics. Um, but then after that, uh, I have a website. So it's jadrianwooten.com. Um, I have some some different teaching resources if you, if you go to that section of the page. Um, I, I participate in a variety of different uh, blogs and either about teaching economics, learning economics, using videos in economics. Um, so there's a couple of resources on there. Um, but reach out and talk to me. So I'm, I'm always available, and I'm probably on Twitter more than I need to be. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to talk to people about teaching, about research, about economics, um, anything. I'm, I'm passionate about a lot of things. Jadrian, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had, a blast. I had a blast, and I personally learned a lot from you. You can find all the links to Jadrian on economicrockstar.com. You have been a true economic rockstar. Thank you for, so much for being generous with your time. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out to listen to my show. If you would like to hear from more great economic rockstars, you could always visit my site, economicrockstar.com. You could also find me in iTunes under the podcast tab and search for Economic Rockstar. Subscribe to this podcast and you will receive automatic updates on any new shows that are coming your way. I would love if you could leave an honest rating and a review. And who knows, I may give you a big shout out on my next episode as my way of saying thank you for being part of the Economic Rockstar community.